Mike Rowe here with a radical idea. If you want to see more companies make more things in this country, buy more things from more companies who make things in this country. I refer in this case to the incredible t-shirts, sweatshirts, blue jeans, and more made by my friends at American Giant. Everything American Giant makes is made in the United States. And right now, you can take 20% off your first order at American-Giant.com slash Mike. That's American-Giant.com slash Mike. I'm from Limestone College. I'm standing in the most hallowed ground of baseball immortality, trying to get ready for a game that I'm pitching against the best prospects in all of baseball. And like... 95% of these guys are big leaguers, you know, at some point, and I'm just like, came to that realization, like, man, this is, I'm close. Welcome into another episode of Baseball Americas from Phenom to the Farm. I'm your host, Kyle Banduho. Today, we're talking to former minor league right-hander Kevin Pesetis. Kevin was a 17th round pick out of Division II Limestone College in 2006. While most organizations don't have the highest of hopes for their 17th round picks out of small schools, two years after being drafted, Kevin was pitching in Yankee Stadium in the Futures game. We talk about that journey, the incredible early minor league success he had, sharing clubhouses with future World Series champions like Pablo Sandoval and Tim Lincecum, and the art of the knuckleball, something that he, he tried to master towards the end of his career. This is the first episode of From Phenom to the Farm that has ever been recorded in person. I want to thank Free Roam Brewing and former Giants left-hander Jeremy Affeld for letting us use their recording studio. Now, they have some, some fancy equipment. It is a professional setup over at Free Roam, and I will say... I was unfamiliar with with the equipment, so we have some audio disparity between Kevin and I. Um, I I got it cleaned up a little bit, so it's okay. It's just going to be a little bit different than the normal audio quality of uh, of the show. But um, again, that is that is all user error, and I do think the benefit of being in person led to an awesome conversation uh, between Kevin and I. So I want to thank him for the time. I want to thank Free Roam and and Jeremy again. Uh, for letting us use their studio. If you are ever in Bernie, Texas, which is about like 15 to 20 minutes north of San Antonio, uh, by all means, go into Free Roam. It's a great spot. Uh, good beer, good food trucks. Uh, you know, there's such thing as no free ads in podcasting, but they let us use their stu- studio. So uh, shout out to Free Roam. Um, episodes of Phenom to the Farm drop every other Tuesday. If you enjoy this one, subscribe wherever you get your podcast and go check out past interviews. And if you haven't yet, leave a five-star rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. Also, make sure to subscribe to BaseballAmerica.com and the BA podcast feed for all amateur baseball and prospect news. The top 100 prospects are here. Top 200 draft prospects are here. College baseball going strong. The World Baseball Classic is going strong. Coverage for all of that is over on BA. Is always a good time to be a subscriber. Baseball America. And with that, let's talk to Kevin Pesetis live from Free Roam Brewing in Bernie, Texas. All right, joining in for today's episode from Phenom to the Farm, the first episode from Phenom to the Farm actually recorded in person. He was a 17th round pick of the Giants in 06 out of Limestone College, former Features Game participant and member of the storage fraternity of knuckleballers, Kevin Pesetis. Kevin, thanks so much for joining me here on From Phenom to the Farm. Absolutely. Welcome to Bernie, man. This is a great thing here, being able to do the first live recording. This is pretty unbelievable i know i want to shout out uh free roam brewery in uh in bernie texas uh no you know there there's the saying in podcasting no free ads but they're letting us record here so free ad absolutely we got a free ad and 
free beer here. Compliments of Jeremy Affel, a former teammate of mine with the Giants. Uh, pretty crazy that uh, you know all these ball players end up finding their way back to Bernie. I mean, I was just taking my son to school yesterday morning and ran into Josh Beckett here in Bernie. You know, who has a ranch down uh, Sister Dale Road and. And right across the uh, street here is uh, 38 and Vine, and, and that the owner of that is uh, Sam Demmel. A former guest of this podcast, Sam Demmel. Pull- I know, I know. I did my research. I pull- saw that. Yeah, cool Cool to be doing this in person. You and I have circled the wagons on this for two years, maybe? Something like that. It's been a process. <laughs> connected uh, connected via work thing. But let's, um, let's jump right into it. Uh, when did you realize you had a future at the next level of baseball, for you that being college baseball? Well, honestly, um, I feel like I really never did because I was cut twice from a high school team. Believe it or not, um, I was five foot ten when I graduated from high school. Um, you know, so and I threw about eighty-two miles an hour, but I was always a super command control style pitcher. And but I had a little bit of tenacity about me. Uh, I always thought I threw harder than that, and I don't know. You call it denial or whatever else. I thought I was an upper 80s guy, and it turned out I was really only throwing about 81, 82, 83, somewhere around in there. And I had one scholarship offer from Limestone College, a small Division two school in South Carolina, and I took it in order to get an education. And pro baseball was never really a thought. It was just hey, let's use this as, as fuel for the destination of getting my college degree. And next thing you know, I caught a late growth spurt and then, you know, started throwing 93, 94 miles an hour. And then pro team, pro team started started knocking down my door. And I thought, man, you know, this might actually happen. We talked about this off mic, but then uh, when we first connected, but Division two baseball is a different kind of grind than high level Division one baseball. It's something we, you know, we've had a theme on the show and we've had smaller school guys, but um, it's, it especially depends on how the program's funded, how you know spending is handled. That's the, there's a lot of variety at Division two programs. You're doing lots of field work. There's long cramp bus rides. You're not staying at the Marriotts. Is there is there ever a point where you thought like during those years at Limestone College where you're like you know Division two baseball isn't for me? You know what? I thought Division two was great in the moment. Uh, I look back on it now. You know, obviously I saw a lot of uh, more green pastures. I guess so the more the longer I got around and the more I played. Um, but Division two, I mean, I, I truly believe it helped prep me for the you know everyday grind of the minor leagues. I mean, eating peanut butter and jellies out of coolers and you know just getting whatever you could. I mean, obviously the parents and you know the boosters and things like that were heavily involved with the program, but. Funny thing about Limestone is uh, Hall of Famer Gaylord Perry, who recently passed away, was the original founder of Limestone. Um, so naturally, when I got drafted by the Giants, I was able to meet him and hang out with him. I'd met him before, but you know uh, he didn't really remember me, and I wouldn't remember me either at the time. Um, but it was cool to see him in, in the Giants clubhouse. He would always come around with Willie Mays and Willie McCovey and those guys, you know, during spring training, uh, you know, to do their talks and things like that. So it was always fun to, um, you know, make that introduction and make that connection again. And then, you know, after I was around for a couple of years in, in Major League camp, uh, he'd always be like, where's my limestone guy at? So that was always pretty cool. So with a Gaylord Perry connection at Limestone, when you got to college, was there like an introduction to loading up the ball? Like, did they, they lay out a bunch of substances and it's like, okay, pick, pick your favorite and let's figure out how you're going to make the ball spin with this. You know, what's crazy. And, and I've told some of the players that, you know, I'm, I'm still connected to this day that are making their journey, you know, up through the minor leagues and everything that I really wasn't a fan, you know, like I, I just, 
I tried messing around with it a little bit early on, but it always seemed like I, for whatever reason, I don't know if because I relied so much on like control and command for me, like I kind of wish I probably would have spent more time, you know, messing with it when it was completely, you know, legal, not scrutinized, not controversial, et cetera, et cetera. But for me, it always caused me to spike the ball and I always would spike breaking balls with it and stuff like that. So I kind of wish now looking back that I would have tinkered with it a little bit more. But at the time, I really didn't like it. It was out of my comfort zone. And, you know, I felt like I was getting wins and getting outs and doing my thing just fine without it. But obviously hindsight's twenty twenty. <laughs> you mentioned, you you know, you eventually saw greener pastures in, in baseball. And a lot of that comes probably AAA playing in Latin America. Those are the greener pastures. When you get to the minor leagues, it's a lot like the lower levels of the minor leagues, especially when, when you came up in the, in the late two thousands, really similar. And it's something we talked about in the show before to division two baseball, uh, you know, not the nicest buses in the world, not the nicest hotels in the world. When you're, when you're on teams, you're sharing clubhouses with guys who were, you know, played at big division one schools who, you know, there's a lot of comfort there or, uh, you know, high school guys who just, just were living with mom and dad. There's a lot of comfort there. Does Division Two baseball, in a way, or just small school baseball, because you, you coach at junior college as well, does it maybe prep you for life in the low minors, maybe a little bit better in some aspects than uh, a top-tier Division One school or high school? So for me, in Division Two, and, and probably um, the most experience I had was playing in front of crowds, I mean, was a big adjustment for me, because, I mean, usually, you know, you got 100 people there at your home games, you know, at a D2 school, and Oh, that's a sellout right there at D2. Yeah, for sure. In our conference tournament, you know, we had about 1,500, but it was mostly like players, families waiting for their team to come. It wasn't like people that were deeply rooted or deeply connected to Limestone for the most part. You know, we still had our 50 blue bloods kind of thing. But I'll never forget it. I mean, I was thrown into my first professional, um, you know, outing. It was in Spokane, Washington. And there were 8,000 people in the stands, and, and the most I'd ever thrown it, you know, against was in the Coastal Plain League, you know, 1,500, 2,000, and you get thrown in front of that, your professional debut, and, and you're just like, man, I'm not in Kansas anymore type thing, you know, and, and but for me, going from D2 specifically, like where I came from, I mean, we had a chain link fence in my Division Two program. Uh, when I first got in and was recruited, I mean, it literally felt like a cow pasture. And then they put some money into it as we got better and things like that as I kind of progressed along in my junior and senior year. But getting into minor leagues, like, the minor leagues felt like the big leagues to me, if we're just being completely honest. Like, it, it was so grand compared to where I came from that every outing felt like literally I had come so far. And is there a benefit to that? It feeling it feeling that big for me, there was because it, it it kept it kept me really sharp and really focused um, at least early on. You know, my first several uh, I'd say two or three years in the minor leagues, I don't think there was anybody that had a better record than me. I mean, I think my first full season I had the lowest earned run average in all of, all of professional baseball. I mean, essentially they called it a minor league Cy Young award. You know, and it really helped me make sure that I was pitching for the right reasons because, like I said, every day felt like the big leagues to me. I mean, it really did. I just didn't know any other way to approach it, and that's just genuinely how it felt every time. When you got you got drafted in the 17th round, uh, and, and with that, you mentioned you played in the Coastal Plains League, which you know typically has some, some higher-level players, some Division One guys, but 
in college, you, you know, your weekend series, you're not facing UNC, you're not facing NC State. How, when you go into that professional environment, do you, you know, did you have a lot of confidence in yourself of, oh, I can make this, I can succeed here, when you, you don't really have as much of the track record or the prestige of a prospect? Because, you know, high schoolers all play against high schoolers, but if you're drafted out of high school, they, they say, hey, you're, you're this prospect. You're a 17th round pick. You went to Division two school. How do you find confidence in that moment to go out and succeed? Well, for me, I mean, my first two years of college, I mean, I started getting some starts, you know, going into my second year. I actually, like, was on a JV team in college, which was not expected, but it was good for my growth and development, at least initially. And then second year, I started getting some looks in the weekend rotation and stuff, and then, you know, I kind of stuck after that. But when it really kind of came to a head that I could potentially do this was when I played in that Coastal playing League. I'm playing against some D1 guys. I started getting some recognition for being able to, to go against these D1 guys and be successful. And, and as soon as I did that um, in that summer league, it felt more like professional baseball. You're taking day trips, occasional overnighter, you know, like you're playing every single day. It's not a college typical schedule. I mean, you're somewhere every day, and I really felt like that experience was invaluable for me um, as far as my development because then I looked at it like, okay, I'm pitching against D1 guys every fifth day in summer ball, and they all have, you know, really notable programs, you know, Big 12, SEC, whatever it may be. And then I'm like, man, when I get back to limestone, I'm going to be unstoppable going back against D2-level competition. And, and that's when I started really getting – um, a lot of my confidence and it borderline like cockiness, you know, a little bit of arrogance started coming in there because I had that success. I took it back and then I started knowing that I was one of the best arms in Division Two that year. Before we get into the minors, I actually want to touch on something you just said about you're on a JV team earlier in earlier in college. I would imagine with that came actually getting some innings and stuff that if you had been with the the actual college team or whatever, you might not have gotten. And I think in today's you know especially with with kids leaving high school whatever there are a lot of kids who will say i want to go you know i i want to go play for this program or i want to go to a four-year school or i don't i don't want to go to junior college i don't want to go to a small school how valuable is just is just playing even if those are jv innings they don't even count in ncaa whatever how how much value and how much of your development do you credit to just playing as a as a freshman or a sophomore as opposed to you know sitting the bench on and, and watching other guys pitch i think repetition i mean if for any baseball guy at any level repetition is key i mean you, you have to hate to get bored um you know and and i can always tell when you know i was recruiting guys as a junior college coach or now you know as a an advisor with uh you know some arms that are in the minor leagues it's i mean i've got a couple guys right now that you know, like the Texas guy I was talking to you about earlier, um, you know, just signed his contract today. He's in with San Fran, and which was awesome. Um, that you know, because I, I deeply care for that kid and his family. Awesome situation, and uh, I just told him like you are you are about to get literally a PhD in baseball at the minor leagues. Like, because people think oh, the University of Texas, they're a college blue blood. They are, but he didn't get near the repetition that he's going to see at least initially in these first three or four months of the minor leagues, his first time going at it, like it's a completely different level of reps. And I honestly like kind of took that approach early um, because I had a few guys that were from my hometown that kind of were steering me and advising me that way that got into the minor leagues pretty early. And we're like, listen, 
you have to get the reps. You have to pitch whenever you can. Every time you get on a mound, it's super vital and super important. It's better to be playing at a lower level, um, you know, every day like on a JV team than literally just waiting around for your chance. So go out there and be proactive and do something about it. You get into the minor leagues and you get, uh, you know, back when they had short season, you get 70 short season innings in right after you sign. Um, but you you head out to full season ball. And like you mentioned, essentially like a minor league Cy Young year. You lead the minor leagues in ERA. Uh, you go from 17th round D2 guy to a guy who's on the map. You and, and just like looking at scouting reports on Baseball America, um, you know, just just reading about you didn't have anything overwhelming that stood out about you on the mound. You were 88 to 90, which even back then was not like you're not blowing it past guys. You had quality breaking stuff, quality control. When you get into the minor leagues with that and you put up better numbers than your college numbers, where do you associate that that success with if if you're a guy with with average stuff cuz now we we look at um, you know, it's all about what it, what it looks like on, on the track man or on the, you know, the rap soda or whatever. And you, you've got to have these, these, inc- you know, incredible spin rates, incredible velocity. What, do you, how did you make those numbers happen really? Well, for me, I think it, it really boiled down to, I, I can remember this moment very vividly, you know, my first time ever on a six pack in spring training, you know, throwing and, you know, I've got meeting Dominican players for the first time, um, you know, seeing guys with, Stuff I had never seen before at the Division Two level in summer ball, anything like the like ungodly stuff. And you know, I'm looking over at them, and I'm trying to be the best self evaluator I can because your most successful baseball players are incredible self evaluators. And I looked at it like, okay, if I try and be those these guys right here, you know, like there is no way that I'm going to be able to carve out any niche for myself anywhere. And I took a lot of pride on being a workhorse type guy. I mean, dude, in D two, I was throwing 157. Like a game. My last college outing in front of like 30 scouts, 158 pitches, you know, like I was throwing complete games. Like I understood that that was my role. I Times were different as well. <laughs> Times were completely different, but like I was a guy that I was not a soft tissue guy. I would always take the ball every fifth day, you know, or seventh day, whatever it was in college. Like I was a guy that you're going to have to rip the ball out of my hand type. Um, I'm going to go seven no matter what. You know, like my complete game numbers were crazy. I mean, I threw complete games in that year in low A. I mean, like that was my mentality. I knew that if I was ever going to have a shot at cracking on a roster, I was going to have to be like a fifth starter or long relief guy. I just kind of knew that. I wasn't really aspiring to be much more. And now I look back at it and I'm like, oh, maybe I should have like, you know, done more to try and add some more velocity. But, I mean, I had times occasionally where I could get 92, 93, and I I had 94 a couple times in special situations. But, like, I worked the ball at 88 to 91 with sink and with a above-average changeup and a good breaking ball, and that was just, like, my thing. And I knew how to pitch, and that all started from the D2 level and having to do it at 80. That way, when I got the equipment... I already had that skill set, so now it's just, it came easy. It felt like now I've got a little bit better equipment, and it's just easier. It's more like, kind of like a video game. It's just like execute, and nobody's going to touch me kind of thing. Um, but what really made the difference for me in that first low A year was I was in the South Atlantic League. I grew up in the South. So everywhere, every town that we played in, I had friends, family, 
um, people that I knew that were coming to watch, and it helped me stay focused because I didn't want to let anybody down. I didn't want to be an embarrassment to my friends, my family, whatever. So, like, I knew somebody was up there that literally I had a long track record with. So I was like, you know what? I've got to go out and impress them tonight. And, like, literally that helped because every ballpark I pitched in, I knew somebody, a group of people, whatever. Like, and it really helped me focus for whatever reason because that was my biggest fear coming out was, well, now they spin a pick on me. You know, let's not disappoint the hometown faithful kind of thing. I like what you said about uh, self-evaluation and having to be good at that. I think that's just in life in general. Like if you're working in a job that's not baseball, that's important. You also have to have an idea of how your employer values you. In baseball, that's especially important because they, they control where you're going. They, they control your career. And I would say in real life, that matters as well. Uh, with that, after you turn in that good year, you were a year prior, a 17th round Division two guy, um, essentially kind of a lottery ticket. If you, if you hit, you hit, do you, how did you evaluate yourself in terms of the giants plans for you after turning in that big year? Do you, do you feel like, Hey, I'm a guy now. I'm not just 17th rounder. Or is there still that stigma tied to you? Is that something internal? Um, you know, how do you suddenly try to get a grasp on where you are in this organization? So for me, after that first year, there was still that stigma of I'm just a D2 kid, you know, like, and, and, and I heard the rumblings around spring training because everyone was like, and you hear it from players, you know, like, especially too, you hear it from coaches and you're like, well, I want to see this Pesetas kid, you know, that turned in this great year. And then they see me and they're like, really? Like, this guy did that? Like, what are we missing? You know, like, he, he's an unheralded guy out of a D2, and he's 88 to 92 on a good day, you know, but, like, he didn't walk people, didn't beat himself, you know, that kind of stuff. Like, and you just hear the guys, and they're talking smack, essentially, and they're like, how in the heck did this guy just turn in that year, you know, 15 and 4 with a 186 or whatever the heck it was? I mean, the guy that ended up beating was Kevin Slowey, who pitched in the big leagues for a long freaking time. Twins legend. Yeah, but similar. Yeah, you're a Twins fan. <laughs> but but anyways, like, it, it just, you know, like, after that first year, I just heard all that, and all the smack talk is what really fueled me. It wasn't, like, inside me being like, well, that was a fluke or whatever. It's just, like, you hear guys talking, you're like, they – thought that there's no way in hell I should have been able to do that. So then I carried that into San Jose the next year in a, a very, very hitter-friendly ballpark and league. In the I Cal- mean, the Cal League is the hitter's league, and now now that's low A, but I I went and looked. In, in 2008, the runs per game in the Cal League were half a run higher than the Carolina League, nearly a full run higher than the, than the FSL. And when you're a guy who doesn't, you know, you didn't share a division with High Desert or Lancaster, but, like, when you... You know, when you report again after this, you know, after this great year, but again, without this overwhelming stuff that's wowing people, do you have to, do you have to change how you go about things when operating a hitter's environment like that or a hitter's league like that? Because again, you get to triple, when you get to triple A, it's the PCL, which is similarly, you know, a higher offensive league. For me, the, the big key was, is, you know, in those leagues, the home run's always going to be a factor. And I gave up plenty that year. You know, I did, but... I think I went back and looked at it later. I think 85%, I think, of my home runs were solo shots. And for me, that's a testament of just not putting extra guys on base, you know, via hit, via wall, you know, whatever, like just limiting the damage. And that was something I was always really good at. And and I think, too, like my off-season training after that first year 
really changed because I knew that I was going to be in California. I knew I was going to be in a hitter's league. I knew that I was going to be pitching at some elevation. You know, I knew I was going to be pitching in windy conditions. Like, I really took a step that 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 winter off season because I put myself on the map and then I was able to kind of link up with a facility with ex major leaguers, uh, Darren Holmes. He owned it. Um, agent at the time, you know, had funded that for me. And, you know, after I got, I got put on the map, so to speak. And then, uh, John Smoltz was a partner in that too. So I started getting around these guys and figuring out what I could do. And that's why I started sinking the ball a lot more, you know, still working in that sink. My velocity held, I started sinking the ball a lot more. And that really helped keeping the ball on the ground in those freaking hitter-friendly environments and those hitter-friendly uh, confines out there. I mean, it helped a ton. So that's really the biggest thing that I changed. I, I worked out and trained for the first time. I was like, this is my job. You know, like, they made it happen for me, and they invested in me, and it really made a huge difference into that second year because I had to change a few things, just small adjustments to be able to, to handle that league because I knew that's kind of where I was going. And with that, that off-season workout and training, that's one of the big things that, especially guys who, without a lot of draft status, struggle to figure out how they're going to do that in the off-season because they, they a lot of times don't have the money for it. Mm-hmm. Um, it. It's fortunate that you got, you know, you were able to find something, but when you get into, you know, and when you're in low A, when you're in high A, and, you know, again, you're a later-round guy, probably not a lot to your name, how are you, how did you make things work as far as getting yourself proper nutrition keeping making sure that off-season work stayed you know stayed on your body throughout you know throughout the minor league season so like i said i was really fortunate that you know i had an agent that was an up-and-coming agent at the time that represented me and and i felt really comfortable with him and and he kind of had this uh you know connection with darren you know represented darren um for a lot of his playing career and then uh, my trainer at the time was Matthew Rollins, who now is the uh, owner of Anchor Bats, which is an interesting connection because then he was a trainer, and, and the name of the place was Acceleration Sports Institute, and it was Darren and John Smoltz's. And uh, like I said, that was really the first time where I was like, you know what, I can't make it eating fast food and peanut butter and jelly. So, like, I'll never forget it because um, I was training at 4.30 to, like, 6.30 in the morning. And then after I did that... Um, I would work, um, and I was tarring the inside of manholes at my dad's uh, concrete foundry to work for there in Spartanburg, and wearing a full respirator, paint suit, the whole bit. And then I would go back in the afternoon for my pen sessions and everything like that as soon as I put in some work time to be able to make some extra money and be able to get me this good nutrition and everything that I needed. And so I would do all of my, my baseball-specific stuff in the afternoon, early evening, and then... Uh, all of my rest and recuperation stuff, and really that was a huge education for me because I was regular, regularly getting cold tubs and, like, really didn't do that. You know, I was regularly getting massages, you know, soft tissue, deep tissue work, stretching, like, never had access to any of that stuff at the Division Two level. It literally was show and go. Here you go, here's some Cheetos and a freaking... Uh, PB&J and like go out there and throw 158 pitches you know that was always the way it was and we'll see it on the other side so like it, it really was an education and I think at that point it started becoming real that I had a shot I, I, I was starting to become a factor at that point um, and then I turned in another great year in high A I mean and that kind of springboarded me into not only the futures game later that summer, but you're doing my job for me. I need you to walk me through <laughs> the, fu- the futures game because you are the futures game is for the first round draft picks, is for the top prospects typically. Walk me through finding out that you 
seventeenth round Division two guy is going to be pitching in the futures game. Still to this day, I don't know how. Um, you know, I really don't. Um, I mean, every team has to have somebody. Oh, well, yeah, they do. <laughs> well, we had two. Well, actually, we had three that year. It was uh, Nate Sherholtz, um was with me on Team USA, and then we had uh, Angel Villalona that was on the world team. Oh, actually, we had four, uh, and then Pablo Sandoval. Oh, he, he turned out pretty good. Yeah, he turned out pretty good. Um, and Nate had a long, big league career. I think he six, seven-year guy. Um, but it, it was crazy because, you know, like, I've been reached out to by USA, Team USA, Paul Seiler, you know, reached out to me. He was like, hey, you know, and, 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 and kind of let, let's backtrack just a second. So I was in the year before, I was in Asheville, North Carolina, pitching in the side league. And I was doing a chart, you know, starting pitchers do a chart in between. And there's an older gentleman that's sitting in the front row uh, right in front of me. And I noticed him, but I just can't, you know, it's not coming to me who he is. And I'm looking, I'm looking, and I'm like, and, and, and I was always like a baseball story. And then, like, now the kids nowadays that are playing, like, they don't really know, like, who came before them kind of thing oftentimes. It's not a matter of, like, they don't respect it or, you know, anything like that. It's just, they just aren't aware, you know, like, at the same level. But, um, and then I figured out it was Davey Johnson. Oh. So I'm talking to Davey Johnson, doing my chart, doing my thing, and he and I are talking, and we're hitting it off, and he's like, man, you're having a monster year, and he's telling me all these things, and he's like, well, maybe you get to pitch for me someday. So then I get called the next year by Paul Seiler with Team USA, you know, and I'm like, holy crap, you know, and he's like, well, you know, we're looking at doing the Futures game differently this year. It's not just prospects. We're looking for the best players that will fit to go to the Beijing Olympics, and so then at that point, he said, well, we got a great manager that's been around a long time. And he was like, well, it's David Johnson. And I said, wow, you know, incredible. I'm like, I was just talking to this guy a year ago. And obviously, I made a good impression. So my name stuck with him. He followed me. And I truly believe to this day that it wasn't really Paul Seiler that had his eye on me so much. It was David Johnson. And in all, you know, everything you did in baseball, where does the Futures game in Team USA kind of rank? It was really up there. Ultimately, I didn't get to, you know, like, um, participate in the Olympics, you know, like I would have wanted to. But, I mean, I'll, I'll never forget being able to go in the original Yankee Stadium and just, like, like I couldn't feel anything warming up. Like, when I got the call, they're like, well, actually, what's really interesting is I thought the Futures game was going to get taken away from me because I had spent time on the disabled list earlier that year in Santa, like, right before leading up to the Futures game date. I get hit by a line drive in my land leg foot, and I broke three toes, you know, like, so I thought that I was going to get taken away from me, they were going to have to sub me out, and then finally I was able to make it back, I was a pretty quick healer, and made it back, and the Futures game was my first time on a live mound since breaking three toes, you know, like, and they put me at the, the very back end of the game, because they were like, listen, this guy's a starter, you know, like, we need to get in multiple innings, and then literally, you know, he had told me, hey, I'm going to put you back there, and if we're in a close tie game situation, you could potentially go two or three innings here because we don't have any other pitching. And I'm like, perfect. You're going to run me out there two, three innings, everybody else gets one? I'm like, heck yeah, that's money in the bank, you know. But I remember coming in that game, we ultimately lost, but um, we were down that inning. Um, you know, I'm in, I'm in there in the ninth inning, and I'm warming up Monument Park, and I'm just, like, trying to, like, focus and get in the game and lock in, but I'm also reflecting, like, 
I'm from Limestone College, and I'm standing in the most hallowed ground of baseball immortality, trying to get ready for a game that I'm pitching against the best prospects in all of baseball. And like 95% of these guys are big leaguers, you know, at some point. And I'm just like, came to that realization, like, man, this is, I'm close, you know, I'm close. And, and I mean, I took dirt home. I took my, I mean, I, I've got so many interesting, interesting, like, uh, keepsakes and stuff like that. And, and, and I still look at that picture on my phone sometimes. I took with my college roommate, he came up, um, and we've got a picture with me on the field in my USA jersey, and you can see all the lattice work, the white fencing on the original Yankee Stadium in the back. Every time I see it, I'm like extremely moved by that. I mean, it was it was super humbling. Did you get to hang around? Because that's the that's the Josh Hamilton home run derby All Star game. It is. Um, so they had a pretty chalk schedule for us, actually, and I mean it, it was. It was pretty uh, overwhelming because, I mean, not only, like, did I have my representation at the time in town, you know, friends, family. So I'm, like, trying to allot my time, get my schedule done with what they laid out, but then obviously have some fun, too. Like, and it wasn't my first time in New York. Um, you know, I had a longtime girlfriend that lived in Long Island for the longest time. So I'd been to the city before. I originally thought the Mets were going to draft me, first and foremost, out of college. They seemed the most interested, and I really had heard from the Giants a couple times, but... Um, you know, it ended up going to San Fran, and so I had been with the city, or been in the city, and was familiar with it, but at the same time, I mean, they, they gave us a pretty stacked schedule. Well, I mean, I didn't have a ton of time, but yeah, I did, I was able to see that, that was really cool. Um, I was a little hungover, I'm not going to lie, because we had a, like a Maxim party that night, and there were girls everywhere, and I mean, it was, yeah. It was a bit of a blur, but the next day obviously shook that some of that off. I mean, you don't often get an off day in the, in the minor leagues, so no, that, that's pretty. really what you had. Even if you had been in, you know, in some random cow league town, you got to take advantage of the off day. Well, that's the thing too. Is like, I mean, it reminded me like earlier. So like, I pretty much did it like. So the Cal League, I made the Cal League All-Star team, and I can't. I went from California to Myrtle Beach. They had it at Myrtle Beach, and I'm like, great. I'm gonna have you know. 200 people there they're all from my hometown three-hour drive to Myrtle Beach you know like I did that in the Futures game like within two weeks like that's a freaking haul like you don't realize like going from California to the east coast and then back in two and a half days three days like it's not fun um but again you know it's just part of the territory with that I always like asking you you do the Futures game you also do the fall league that year when it's all you know, Fall League is obviously for top prospects. Futures game is you know top of the top. When you're surrounded by all these guys, best of the best, were there guys for you that you watched that like stood out? Like this, this guy's different. That's a really long list. Um, that would be a, a heck of a long podcast. Um, I mean, there were so many. I mean, like obviously, like Pablo Sandoval was one that was just unbelievable. Um, Emmanuel Burris was in my draft class, and obviously Tim Linscomb was in my draft class. I'll never forget, uh, you know, the first time Tim Linscomb walked in to, after we had signed him, you know, after their negotiations and everything, walked in the clubhouse. And our, like, backup catcher then, I won't say his name, I don't want to embarrass him, but he was like our third-string catcher, you know, kind of like a, not like a taxi squad player, but, you know, like, he knew he was going to be like a third, you know, he was a D2 guy too. And... Linscombe walks in and drops his bag off, and, you know, this this catcher says, uh, walks up to him and has no idea who he is, you know, and he's a very homely-looking guy, you know, like, at least early, you know, kind of before he got 
a little bit more cleaned up and whatnot. Um, excuse me. Uh, and hands him his cleats. The catcher hands Tim Linscombe his cleats, and he's like, hey, man, I need you to shine these up for me and get them back for me before game time. So Tim takes them, and Tim's like, okay. You know, walks them outside and just chucks them. <laughs> just chucks them. And then the, the guy's completely oblivious that that's your $5 million, 10th pick overall future Cy Young winner, Tim Linscombe. And, and I'll never, two-time future yeah, Cy Young. two-time, yeah. And, and I'll never forget his first outing. You know, like, it strikes up the side on nine pitches, and they're all 96 miles an hour or harder, and they're all straight fastballs, you know. And, I mean, he's blowing out. Like, he said Tyler Tyler Colvin was in one of those, uh, was in that inning. I mean, first thing, like, I'm looking over, and I'm like, we don't have a freaking chance. You know what I mean? I got no shot of it. Like, this is what you're up against. And then, obviously, I mean, Pablo was, I mean, Pablo was incredible because Pablo was my catcher in 2008. A lot of people don't realize that. He wasn't a third baseman. He's a freaking catcher, you know, like, and, and he was a dang good catcher. Um, but then, you know, like, they moved him out of there because they had drafted a guy named Buster Posey, you know, like. Well, <laughs> Turned out okay. <laughs> Turned out all right. And, and, and like I said, you, like, those guys, like, you, you run into those guys, you know it instantly. Like, Buster walks in 2008, and you know it instantly, and, and. You know, those guys are just on another level of not only talent, but maturity. I mean, Buster walks in, and, and it's and I know Jeremy here at the bar, he, he did test to him, and Buster is still very close. And, like, he's a guy that walks in, and he's been in the room for two years already. That's just the kind of presence and maturity that he had. I mean, you know, he was only 21 or whatever when we picked him up and signed him, and but he acted like he was 41, you know, like just the way he was and his demeanor and everything, and, it, and it's special. I mean, that's the best word for it. They're special. You get to you, you finish up uh, pretty much like a not a miracle season, but like an incredible year. When you get to you get to AAA, it the the numbers just aren't the same between your your years in AAA with the Giants. You then get traded uh, for Jose Guillen, arm strength legend. Uh, what what for you made the difference in AAA? And I think now with you know. 10 years of retrospection, are there, what, what were adjustments that you maybe needed to make that didn't get made? Or, you know, is, you know, with baseball, a lot of it, we were texting about this last week. A lot of it is timing. A lot of it is luck. So for me, um, so my first year in AAA, okay, I went from high A to AAA. Didn't do any time in AA on my way up. I, I eventually circled back to AA with the Nationals organization later on. Um, that was actually my first time in AA, but um, anyways, uh, so my first half, I was like 10 and 1 with a 3, and made the all-star team, all that, you know, there was a lot of chatter around me when I was going to make my debut, you know, all the blogospheres and, you know, everything else that was running rampant then, you know, like, and, and other people, you know, kind of like Jeremy, were like, man, this is one of the best guys we had in camp, and now he's killing, you know, like, what is going on here? So at that point, at that halfway point, I don't want to say like I started getting a little bitter, but I was kind of like, what else do I have to do? You know, and at that point, like ABT started coming into my, my head and, and, and I kind of have that now, not only with with work, but like I'm a big bow hunter and I love archery and like I'm always tinkering, you know? So like at that point, I'm like, I've got to do something different. There's a reason why I'm being kept out. I'm 10 and one in AAA, made the all-star team. At that point, I'd made an all-star team everywhere I'd ever been. You know, always put up numbers like 
I've got to start tinkering and doing something different because clearly I don't have it. And I'll never forget it. I came back from the, the uh, made my first start after the All-Star break, and our pitching coordinator was in town, and he's like, listen, we're going to teach you a slider. Like, you need a slider, you don't have a slider, you have a fastball change of curveball, you know, and then obviously your sinker. And I had just thrown, like, 117 pitches, like, two days before. So, like, he comes in, and he's teaching me all these slider grips, and he's like, we're just going to go out and pin and rip sliders. And I'm like, I'm hanging 117 pitches, and I'm out there ripping sliders. And, like, my season after that point, I don't know if it had to do with, like, arm fatigue or what, but I might have thrown 100 sliders. I don't know. And, and like, it was... And, I mean, he's yelling at me. He's an old-school guy. Like, you know, when are you going to understand? Like, this is the reason why you're not in the big leagues right now and AT&T and helping us out. You know, like, you need another breaking ball. You know, like, and it just didn't come naturally to me. It really didn't. Had there been any talk beforehand? Because you've been a three-pitch guy for two or three years. Not yeah, Had really. there been any talk beforehand of, hey, you need to add another breaker? No. And, 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 I, and I could sense his frustration because, like, you know, at the same time, it's like, he always wanted the best for me. We always had some really hard conversations, you know, and, and but at that time it was like, man, was that the best time? Because I didn't have the best start against Memphis that night, but like, we're in the bullpen and it's hot and I'm throwing 100, dude, and 100 sliders of every divot, like start out some at 45 feet, went to 55 feet, went to 65 feet, you know, just to try and throw stuff against, against the wall and try and figure it out. And, and, and it just... It was really rough. And then after that point, like, they were like, okay, we want you to implement it 55% of the time in your next games. And then so, like, and that's the tale of the two halves and the tale of the two numbers that, like, I look back on and I'm like, I'm never going to get that back. Because the minor league is, is all about development. But for me, it was like, if I put up numbers long enough, my approach was nobody can deny me forever. Because, I mean, at that point, I think it was like 55 and 15 in my career or something like that. You know, with like a three, three, two, something like that. I mean, like, more than enough. But from that point on, I was being somebody that I wasn't. I never was that guy. Like, I never was a slider guy. I mean, like, I had never thrown a slider in my previous 24 years on earth. And then they wanted me to do this and throw it 55% of the time. So I was doing things that weren't necessarily my strengths just to figure something out so I could, you know, kind of springboard myself in there the following year or hopefully in September, you know, is what I was really uh, aiming for. But I think my second half number, I was like one in six down the stretch, like with like a seven and a half, like completely uncharacteristic. And then slider was part of my repertoire after that going forward. And then the next year or just, man, like, I had an unbelievable spring training. I think I gave up one earned run. I was making starts for Jonathan Sanchez. He was in the World Baseball Classic. And I got through 22 innings and gave up one run. And, I mean, I had a phenomenal spring. Best ever. And I was a couple innings short of, like, actually breaking a Cactus League record. I found out later about that. But, um, so, like, and I was starting the entire time. And everybody thought I was going to make the team that year. And I was like, man, I'm going to make the team, make the team. And, Got all the way to the Bay Bridge series, and Barry Zito was starting one night, and I was not supposed to start. I mean, I'm in the dang uh, dugout, and I've got flats on and a jacket, and it's like I had a jersey on, but I had a jacket and in my shoes, and literally Boach looks down at me, and he's like, Pesadas, go warm up, and I'm like, I've never come out of the bullpen. The only time I ever came out of the bullpen was during All-Star Games, you know? And 
I got cut right after the game. I gave up, I think, two runs, and that was like literally my first earned runs of the, the entire spring. You know, it was in Pac Bell Park um, at the time. I think it was Pac Bell, yeah. And uh, right after Barry Zito in a long relief outing, never had done long relief <laughs> in spring training or anything like that. And I was on a bus to AAA right after. So I, I, I literally had guys coming up to me like Jeremy saying, You're making the team, dude, you're still here. There's nobody else left to cut. <laughs> you know, like, you're here. It's funny. One of our, our mutual friends, Sam Wolf, kind of same thing. Uh, he made, when he was with the Rangers, uh, you know, pitched in the the big league game that is right before the season starts. They it, The Rangers did it uh, here at the Alamo Dome in San Antonio. They did the, kind of an exhibition series and then, you know, cut the next day back to AAA. And like Sam, n- neither of you... Neither of you eventually made that elusive debut. I, you know, and not obviously not to, to spoil the rest of the show, but like when you look back on that, how much would one start one inning? Would it, would it actually change how you view your career? Yes and no. Um, and, you know, everybody wants that like, I guess, coronation of, you know, all the hard work, dedication, everything like that. But the way I look at it, and still to this day, and and my wife has a little bit, like, tough time with it, because she wasn't around, like, really, like, during the good days. (laughs) So it was kind of, like, towards the end, this frustration of converting to a knuckleball, and me being mad, pissed off all the time, like, why am I doing, like, because it's extremely humbling, you know, like, and, and, and it's such a fickle pitch and it's just such a fickle demeanor that goes along with it. Um, but like, so for me, I did way more than I was supposed to ever do. And like, I literally look at it from that perspective. Like I was never supposed to get drafted. I was never supposed to freaking win a minor league cycle. I was never supposed to do any of that because it was a 17th round roll of dice, small D2 kid that could pitch a little. So, like, that's how still to this day, like, a lot of guys, it would eat them alive, but it doesn't eat me alive because I'm like, I had a pretty damn good run. I played a long time, made some money, you know, didn't make any in the big leagues, but I made some money elsewhere, and I met a lot of really cool people, and I'm still involved in the game in some, in some capacity. It's pretty dang cool. That would be a great quote to wrap the show on, but you, you did try to throw a knuckleball, and I just... I, you're you're you know you've gone through a couple organizations you're kind of on last gasp with the rangers and they come to you and say hey all right dickie's having some success why don't you have that same success well that's probably my biggest regret in all my baseball career because for the first time um you know i was a minor league free agent and i followed the money and was it necessarily the best thing for me to do no, if I had to do it all over again, I would have signed back with the Washington Nationals. I had a great year with them. They love me. Their man, my manager Matt Lee Crow is a Carolina guy at the time. Like another Twins legend. Let, another it, let twin, the record show. Twins legend. Yeah, and, and like if I had to do it all over again, I wouldn't have taken you know double the money to go to Texas. But again, you know, on a personal level, I met my wife in Texas playing for the Texas Rays, so that part worked out. But as far as my playing career goes, like I would have never like done that and they literally signed me to an extension in the middle of my first year for the following year if I would convert to a knuckleball and like literally 
I was screwing around with it in spring training, and our pitching coordinator, pitching driver guy was like, dang, thing's pretty good. I mean, and they did a lot for me as far as resources, you know, put me in touch with RA. I had several conversations with RA, and, and I trained here in, uh, in Houston in the offseason. They flew me out to Houston uh, to work with another knuckleballer, and uh, Steve Sparks, who's an announcer for the Astros. And I worked with Steve, and it's like, I was doing it my way, like I kind of done everything in my career up to that point. Doing it my way was unconventional, you know, like I was a little bit of cross body, you know, when I threw it, but the pitch was the best that it, it ever was. And then I tried being more like Steve Sparks and throwing it the way Steve Sparks would throw it, you know, like getting all this counsel, started changing my delivery and everything like that. And then it's like the pitch regressed. It got worse instead of like me being me and just doing what comes natural when it was really good. And that's why I say it's such a fickle pitch. Um, and then the, the fickle demeanor that goes along with it because you're always like, I always had a huge like set of like just bravado about me where it's like, I'll throw you 88 down the middle, like whatever happens, happens kind of thing. So like I was perfect for the knuckleball because my arm stroke was really consistent. And I had enough courage and enough guile and enough balls to throw a pitch up there at 70 miles an hour and, like, not be afraid it's going to come back at me 107. You know, like, I, I just had that about me. I didn't care. I'm, like, playing with house money still kind of thing. Is the knuckleball like a like a golf swing where it's got to be dialed for you to flush it? Like, everything has to go right? Because if, if it doesn't dance, it's it's meat. So, yes. And, and, and it's kind of like the same phenomenon you get with, like, uh, or the same... Uh, What's the word I'm looking for here? Like, same stimulation you get when you hit a golf ball. Like, when you pure a golf shot, you don't feel anything. It's the same way with a knuckleball. When you throw a knuckleball and, like, it just clicks, it comes off perfect. Like, I mean, dude, I was doing all sorts of, like, quirky stuff. Like, I was going to get my nails done on road trips. Like, it was really humiliating at times. It's a lifestyle. It's a lifestyle, 100%. And, 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 but literally, like, when it clicks and you get a perfect release and everything works, it's just like you don't feel anything. It's like a pure golf shot. You're like, man, like you don't feel anything. You don't feel the ball hit the face of the club. You don't feel anything. It's just like when you when you barrel a home run, you know, like, and I almost had one of those in the minor leagues. I'm still upset I didn't. I hit the top of the wall in AAA. But anyways, um, you don't feel anything. You get the contact, and it's just like, oh, what happened? And then the knuckleball was just like that. And pitching conventionally, I never got that. Like, never once had that stimulation. Never once. It was crazy. But with a knuckleball, it's just like like all the world came into sync at this one perfect moment. And you throw it, and that thing butterflies. And then, like, you're like, oh, man, this is great. And then your catcher misses it by three feet, and runners advance three bases. <laughs> so that was always the fun part of it. It's like, yeah, I can throw it. It's going to be nasty. But then the second part is he's not going to freaking catch it, and the batter sure as hell isn't going to hit it. So at that point, it's just like I'm waiting for the rebound to come back. The knuckleball giveth, and the knuckleball taketh away. 100%. So you after that, after the knuckleball, uh, you hang it up. You know, get into coaching, do different couple different things. When you look back now, if you could have given your 22-year-old self a pep talk right after signing before heading to the minor leagues, what would that pep talk look like? Man, that's a great question. I think it would be don't try and change who you are, man, because like I said, I tried to do it and tried to kind of reinvent myself, you know, not only once with a slider, but twice later. It's just... Yeah, I 
mean, that, that's literally what it would be. Because, and, and, and I think part of that, like I said, is like, even now, it's like I'm always tinkering around with something, trying to get an edge. And like, I kind of took on that persona instead of just really doing what I did best and stuck to my strength and kept putting up numbers. And somebody would eventually, you know, give me a shot. And if not, I could lay my head down and be all right, you know, because I was true to myself. I think that's the biggest thing. And, you know, it's one of those great parables, you know, um, you know, call it, you know, from the Bible, you know, know thyself, you know, like it, it just, that's probably the biggest takeaway, you know, looking back, it's like, man, I tried to be two different people you know, along the way because people were dangling that, that carrot in front of me saying, if you do this, you'll pitch in the big leagues, you know, instead of me just keep my head down, keep doing what I was doing and, and stay the course. So that, that's what I would do. Quick rapid fire for you, and then I'll let you get out of here. Favorite minor league ballpark? Ooh. That's a really good one. Um, I would have to say, and this ballpark isn't around anymore, um, the AAA ballpark in Portland. Oh. Okay, yeah, that's a, that's a first for that one. Uh, least favorite minor league ballpark? I can't think of the name of it, but it was in the Cow League, uh, Bakersfield, by far, not even close. Also not around. <laughs> uh, best hitter you ever faced? Mookie Betts. How'd that go? Uh, I don't know. It was 18 for 23 over a four-game set. <laughs> I don't know. Not strictly what, off of me, but like I saw him on rehab. Was that that summer in the Carolina League? Yeah, I mean, like I, I literally... like. They sent me down there because I was battling a couple things. They sent me down there. I didn't think I would end up staying down there. but um, And then the, I converted fully to the uh, the knuckleball after that. But, yeah, I saw him, and I was telling guys, I'm like, this guy's going to be special. And nobody knew who Mookie Betts was at that time, but I'm like, that guy's going to be special. I worked, I worked for Salem that summer. And, it, I mean. And I didn't even – and what was crazy is, like, I didn't even – like, I saw Trout early and, like, I own Trout, like I, but like Trout really didn't become Trout. I feel like until he got to the big leagues, which is crazy because usually you don't see guys take those steps like in the big leagues. Like it, it's crazy. Like he went from literally like, oh man, he's a phenomenal guy to like, oh my god, he's Mickey Mantle. Mm-hmm. You know, like within a year. And Mookie kind of did that too. But like I saw Mookie and I was like, man, this guy, he's a generational type player. Um, but yeah, I mean, like, and, and probably my favorite player that I ever pitched against was King Griffey. Saw King oh. Griffey at the end, struck King Griffey out, and then he hit a home run off me right after second at bat. I tried to do the same sequence to him, and he knew that and hit it. And uh, Peoria <laughs> during spring training he hit it about four sixty opposite field. <laughs> Man, I hope so, you. I would. I would have ran out and gotten the ball. <laughs> well, what was crazy is like, and, and I'll keep it super brief, but I was out of the start or whatever and I was icing up and I was in the clubhouse and there's adjoining clubhouses there in, in Peoria and he walked through ours to get to theirs and he looked at me and you know true junior fashion had the freaking hat flip back and obviously he was at the very end you know but still he was my guy you grew up in the 90s he's your guy essentially mm-hmm. you know it's the yeah. Braves pitching staff Glavitt or in uh, Griffey yeah. and you know he looked at me and kind of winked he was like man you had me that first time he's like that's good stuff I got you. Had me in the first half, not going to lie. I was like, holy crap. I'm like, I I, I was just like completely overcome. I'm not an impressionable person, but like I was just overcome. You know, I really was. 
All right, uh, th this one's tough. Carolina barbecue, Texas barbecue. Texas, not even close. Oh, really? Wow, not not fighting for the for the home state. Not even close. Okay, uh, last one. Everyone gets this. Do you have a nightmare bus ride story from the minor leagues? No, but I do have one from the Dominican. Oh yeah, those are the best. Hit me with it. <laughs> <laughs> Riding back from the capital, um, and. Yeah, I was super tired. I think my greenies were off, or my greenie coffee. I can't really probably say that on the air. My greenie coffee, uh, I was always clean. Um, my greenie coffee wore off, and, man, I just crashed. I'm super tired. I'm laying on the freaking floor, like, often as, you know, principles. And, and then literally, like, I get bounced. Like, I hear this giant boom, right? And I get bounced, like, from the bottom. I'm not a small guy. At that point, I was, like, 235, you know, six foot four, and, like, I get jumped off the bottom about like four and a half feet, and I hit the luggage rack with my back. We had run over a cow. Oh, my God. In the middle of one of these Dominican back road highways that are poorly lit, we had hit a cow, and this thing had catapulted me to the top of the overhead bins on this freaking charter bus. And, dude, I'll never forget it. Like, I thought that I wasn't going to be able to make my net. Like, it rocked me that hard, and, like, literally, like, and it was crazy because every bus ride after that, I kind of realized like what it was because you'd get these bumps and they'd be like, "Oh, what is that?" And you talk to one of the Dominican players and they're like, "Paro," <laughs> you know. It's like we would hit dogs, we would hit cows, you know. Like it just didn't matter. Like in the Dominican, like stop signs are not even like relevant. You just honk twice and cruise through. Um, I actually took that skill here with me to Texas, um, <laughs> so I actually really don't stop ever. So if you see me out there, I'm not stopping, but. Oh, man. Uh, Kevin, that is all I've got for you. Thank you so much for joining from Phenom on the Farm. Absolutely. Awesome. Awesome time. Thanks, Kyle. And that's it for today's episode from Phenom on the Farm. Big thanks to Kevin Pesetis for stopping by, sharing his story, or actually, you know, for, for meeting me up in person and, and uh, sharing his story. A lot of fun there. Uh, again, big thanks to Free Run Brewing and former Giants left-hander Jeremy Affeld for letting us use their studio. If you enjoyed this episode, subscribe wherever you get your podcast. And we will see you in two weeks. Thanks for listening.